on it. You say, oh, that's the overspeak. You know, there's times I haven't been in worship and all those kind of things. But let me just tell you something. There's at least four reasons that you should sing with the people of God. First of all, it glorifies God. It brings glory to his name. What other things do you sing about in this world with others? What other thing do you sing about? He deserves our singing. Second, it is a spiritual weapon against a real evil force in this world, and his name is Satan. Singing the praise of God fights a spiritual battle that cannot be fought any other way. Now, you could do that in your home, I hope. But listen, when we come in here on a Sunday morning, doesn't it make a difference for you to hear the people of God singing loudly the praise of God? Some of you walk through these doors today, you're ready to give up. You're ready to give up. You couldn't even bear to sing. And then you heard the voices of God's people lifted up around you. And you feel energized. You can go another day. It worships our great God. It fights a spiritual war that can't be fought any other way. Third, it ministers to the people in the pew with you. Trust this. The little people in this room and the big people in this room are watching you worship God. So worship like they're watching. And every now and then, take your eye off the screen, even if you turn around and look at everybody around you and look like a fool, and watch the people worship around you. Make eye contact. I know it's uncomfortable. Look in deep into somebody else's eyes and sing to Jesus and them sing to Jesus and feel what it does. Singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to one another. That's the command of God. Now finally, it does work for you. Notice I put you last. Our world puts us first. God is first. The spiritual war is next. Our brothers and sisters are next. We're last. But there is a benefit that you gain from being here, right? And hearing its song. We confess the word. We sing the word. We pray the word. We preach the word. And all of this is how we fight the war that we are in the midst of every single day. So next time you want to roll over, hit the snooze button, call it a day, go fishing, do something else because you got something better to do, cancel your plans and come anyway to church. If you can't be here, be somewhere worshiping God together with his people. Now I want to pray for us, and then I want to preach. Let's pray. Father, we lose sight of how vital it is to our existence to not only acknowledge you in our hearts, but to open our mouths and confess and give witness to your greatness in the presence of others. God, you are great. We look at this glorious creation which you have surrounded us with, the sun and all of its beauty and power, the trees and all of their greenery, the flowers of the field, the birds of the air, our fellow man. We see these things and we do not pass them by this morning. We pause and say all of this is due to a beautiful and powerful almighty God in heaven who we get to call Father, so Father, we come to you hallowing your name. 
You are not like anything in your creation. You are above all, and you are yet near to us. And so that's why we pray through the Spirit this morning for our brothers and sisters who are struggling. We pray, God, that you would continue to walk through tough times with the loss of loved ones for Robert and for Adam and Scott and the families that um, God have lost this week. Mothers and grandmothers. and Lord, we ask that you would be with them now. Help us to be with them in their suffering. Father, we pray for Jothi as she's at home, still recovering from the accident that they had. Lord, uh, we know you're with her. We pray that your strength would be her strength and that she would draw on you and your word uh, during this time. God, uh, you know her grief over those she knows who have died and are dying in India even now uh, under the pandemic of coronavirus. And Lord, we ask that you would just comfort her through your spirit and work in a mighty way in all of these different situations. Lord, there are others who are suffering um, physically in our congregation um, that aren't comfortable to say it out loud, but right now we pray for them. We pray, God, also for those who struggle with mental and emotional uh, plagues of, of hurt and and, and God, and sickness, and we ask God that you would strengthen them. And God, we pray for those who are spiritually uh, being dashed against the rocks, it feels, in this moment. And yet your providence is over all and in all. And you are working all of these things to our good and to your great glory. And so, Lord, we bend our knee and say, continue your work in and through us. God, would you use Grace Fellowship until you come again to proclaim the greatness of our Savior and to minister to those who you entrust to us. We love you because you have loved us. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 12. And we're going to be preaching through Acts 25, verse 12. I hope you packed a lunch. I'm only kind of kidding. I hope you don't need it, but the truth is, this is a big text. And sure, we could have preached uh, four, five, six, ten, twenty passages, I mean, twenty sermons out of this passage. But really, this passage together holds together with a common theme. So the point of expository preaching is to preach the theme of the writer, to tell the idea the way the writer of the scripture told it. And so that's what we want to do today. We want to grab hold of this theme, this great theme of the uh, writer, Luke, and we want to work it into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Today's sermon is entitled, God's Glorious Providence, Inconvenience, Interruption, and Imprisonment. In 2001, a missionary couple named Jim and Veronica Bowers We're on a Cessna 185. Veronica seated right behind the pilot, Steve, holding her baby, Charity, small baby, in her arms. And the Peruvian Air Force mistaked them for a potential drug-running plane. And they began to fire shots on this missionary couple's plane. One bullet grazed past Jim's head. 
another bullet went through the seat, through Veronica, into Charity, and lodged in her small body, killing both of them. Steve was hit with another bullet and wounded but not dead and able to crash land the plane. By God's providence, Jim and their six-year-old son and the pilot Steve survived. But Veronica and Charity were taken. Four weeks later, at a memorial service, Jim stood up. What would a man say at this moment? I mean, he'd given his life to the mission of the gospel in a foreign country to people not like him, taking the gospel to the jungles. And now his reward, it felt in the moment, was a dead wife and a dead child. Many people spoke that day, none as powerfully as Jim, obviously. Elizabeth Elliot spoke. Steve Saint came and spoke. But then Jim rose to the pulpit. And with the power of God, as only God can do, he was strengthened to give a witness to the providence of God in taking, in God choosing to take his wife and his child from this earth to their heavenly existence. Four weeks after his wife is dead, his child is dead, and now he's got to raise a six-year-old boy. And the, all of this, not because they went on some fanciful vacation, and there was a, that would be bad, right? Not because of disease, that would be awful. But as the world would call it, a tragic accident occurred. But as he would say, an act of sovereign providence took place. And the Lord chose to take one and leave another. This sermon covers a lot of text. But the theme of the sermon really rests in the providence of God. And I want to make certain that that main idea of this text comes forward loud and clear to everyone. In this great text, we will read of the events of Paul's life that cover a little over two years of his life. And he spends most of this time waiting to receive a verdict on a bogus charge under house arrest. If he's not under house arrest in one location, he's being moved to another location. He's never free in this text. God has seen fit to place the world's greatest evangelist missionary under restraint of human authorities rather than him freely moving about the, the, old, the, the, the whole world planting churches. Isn't it perplexing to think about this? I mean, when we, when we look at a text like this, it's perplexing, isn't it? Is this how you would do it? Is this how I would do it? Surely this is a mistake. Surely it's the work of Satan to slow the cause of Christ. My prayer is, is that by the end of today, we don't think either of those things, but rather we accept that God's providence is not like our thoughts and his ways are not like our ways. 
Today we want to see that God's glorious providence is at work in and through all of life's inconvenience, interruption, and imprisonment. So let's define the term first of all. Let's admit something right off the gate, right off the bat, right? Right out of the gate. I'll get my words right in a minute. Let's admit something. The word providence is not in the original text of the Bible. In the original languages, the word is not there. The the theological truth is unmistakable. The word is not in the text. Don't let that bother you. The word trinity is not in the Bible either. And yet, unmistakably, the, the fact of the trinity is resoundingly true from the text. So often theologians use words to explain an idea that is so pervasive it's hard to put into a word. Providence is this kind of word. John Piper says this, the word providence is striking. It comes from the word provide, which has two parts. Pro in the Latin meaning forward or on behalf of and vide in the Latin to see. So you might think that provide would mean to see forward or to foresee, but it doesn't. It means to supply what is needed, to give sustenance or support. And so the noun providence has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. There's our definition. The act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. He goes on to say this, thus providence is the act of God's seeing to the universe. He'll see to that. (laughs) He'll see to what's going on in the universe. Piper wrote over 800 pages on this topic. We know he just released the book. This is his greatest book. I feel like somewhat of a small expert having read almost everything he's ever written. I'm not done with the book, by the way. Uh, I wish I was. But I'm not. I'm journeying through it. But that's in the beginning of his book. And it's also from an article in 1995. His theology really hadn't changed all that much in those years. The act of God seeing to the universe. That's what providence means. J.I. Packer in his concise theology says this. Quoting the verse, Proverbs, we're familiar with 1633. The, The lot is cast in the lap. And what? And the Lord makes every decision. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11. If creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, providence is a continued exercise of that same energy whereby the creator according to his own will, keeps all creatures in being, involves himself in all events, directs all things to their appointed end. The model is of purposive, personal management with total hands-on control. God is completely in charge of his world. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. Some have restricted God's providence to foreknowledge without control or upholding without intervention or general oversight without concerning for details, but the testimony to providence as formulated above is overwhelming. These are some of the Bible statements about God. 
God providentially controls the universe at large over the physical world, over the brute creation, over the affairs of nations, over man's birth and lot in life, over the outward successes and failures of men's lives, over things seemingly accidental or insignificant, in the protection of the righteous, in supplying the wants of God's people, in giving answers to prayer, in the exposure and punishment of the wicked. This is what he says, J.I. Packer, about providence. And I agree. And there are, I, I don't know, he quotes 50 passages. 50. That's just off probably the top of J.I. Packer's brain as he's writing. In other words, this isn't some obscure thing that we're talking about today. This is the Bible, really. Clear thinking about God's involvement in the world process and in the acts of rational creatures requires completely uh, requires complementary sets of statements. This is what Packer says. Thus, a person takes action, or an event is triggered by natural causes, or Satan shows his hand, yet God overrules. This is the message of the book of Esther, where God's name nowhere appears. Again, things that are done contravene God's will of command, yet they fulfill his will of events. Again, humans mean what they do for evil, yet God, who overrules, uses their actions for good. Again, humans, under God's overruling, sin... Yet God is not the author of sin. Rather, he is its judge. The nature of God's concurrent or confluent involvement in all that occurs in his world, as without violating the nature of things, the ongoing causal processes, or human free agency, he makes his will of events come to pass. It's mystery to us. But the consistent biblical teaching about God's involvement is as stated above. Of the evils that infect God's world, moral and spiritual perversity, waste of good, physical disorder, disruption of a spoiled cosmos, is in, it can summarily be said, God permits evil, he punishes evil, he brings good out of evil, he uses evil to test and discipline those he loves, and one day he will redeem his people from the power and presence of evil altogether. The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces. Fortune, fate, luck, all that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summon to trust, obey, and rejoice knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. I hope this helps us understand what we're talking about today, um, what we mean when we use a term like providence. I had a conversation with my son not long ago. Uh, we were driving together and discussing providence. I don't know, over the last three years, no one I've talked about providence <laughs> hundreds of times. I mean, maybe thousands, I don't know. He's really struggled with it, like, you know, because he feels like the world is fatalistic. It's always been his struggle. 
But this time, we're riding along, and he says to me, Dad, the big difference between fatalism and providence is relationship. I almost wrecked the truck. It would have been providential. He said, fatalism, listen to this, fatalism is when we believe that things are happening by blind force. Fate is just belief that some force in the world's making everything happen and no one's really in control, but providence is believing that our good God is in control of everything that happens. We are living out a relationship with God and that's why everything is happening, Dad. I've said it a thousand times. He finally said it back to me. (laughs) And through the tears, I just smiled and said, yeah, that's it. That's the difference. The lost world can't help but see fatalism. And the Christian knows the good God behind all things. This is providence. I might have cried a little bit. Obviously, I did. I cried. I I smiled a lot. Because these are hard-learned lessons in all of our lives. You see, if I truly believe in providence, then it changes everything about my life. But too often in daily routine, I'm not functioning in the belief of this great doctrine like it's true. Now, let me give you an example. I gave you a positive example. Let me give you a negative one. This past Tuesday, I was in my office studying. I was planning on meeting Ryan Limbaugh. He had texted me and said, let's meet for lunch. So I was going to do that at 11 o'clock down in Anniston because I needed to be back for summer in collaboration at 1230. And if Ryan and I get together, an hour is not long enough, you know. And so I'm working along, and I leave just in time to get there to where we were going to meet. I had to get back to church, you know. I was, had that on my mind. I left the office, and I'm driving along. Just, just barely have gotten out of the parking lot. My phone rings. It's, it's Amy. Amy had been providentially, notice the word, providentially hindered from getting our girls from field day at school. There was nobody else to get them, so she said, I need you to get them. When? 11 o'clock. I've got plans. So I, yeah, sure, I can do that. I put the phone down. I was praying, talking to myself, probably. And I was saying things like, you know, I'm going to be late. I got to get to meet Ryan. I'm, I mean, what, why can't we think ahead? Like, what, what do we do? I'm fussing. I get to the school in a great attitude and mental state and spiritual position before the Lord, as you can imagine. I rush in. I've called Ryan. It'll be 11.15. I'm rushing to the school, picking up the girls, rushing to drop them off at the house. All the time, I had the girls in my truck. These, these children entrusted to me, right? I had them in my truck, and I was not in a good mood. They knew I wasn't in a good mood because I was talking out loud about how I was going to be late to my meeting. Why did it take so long for them to get out to the truck? 
I needed to leave. I was telling them all these things, basically going, all of this is going to slow me down. I was, I was preparing them for rolling up to the house and kicking them out the door while I keep rolling. I know nobody else has ever done this in your daily routine. This is just me. But see, I was, I was on to my plan and what I needed to do, and I was in such a rush. It was not my greatest dad moment. But the question is, why was I this upset about what was happening to me? Amy hadn't done anything wrong. My kids hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't done anything wrong. But this is where we were. The fact is that this small interruption spiraled me into sin because not God caused me to sin, but because of the passions that are inside of me. And I began to sin. I was not in that moment living out what I say I believe about God ruling every event of life, small and big. I was not living out the relationship with God that confesses, that I confess by, I didn't confess by my actions that my father had a plan that was greater than my plan and different from my plan. And so now I was on his plan. I had eternal beings in the truck with me and I'm fussing about being 15 minutes behind the schedule that's so important. And I just screwed down tight on them about how late they were. Instead of using the moment to say, maybe God wanted my girls in my car so I could cheer them, so I could encourage them, so I could show them how to trust God in interruption. I ate with Ryan, apologized, didn't tell him I sinned. That, that's too much. I wasn't ready for that. I got back here on time for sermon collaboration. We're sitting around, and they look at me because I'm preaching. What's the text about? Guys, it's awesome. God's providence in everything. Interruptions. I had the title in my mind. You know, interruptions. Imprisonment. Paul sees it all through the grid of his father has a plan for him. And at that moment, the spirit, it was like piercing knife to my heart. He didn't say these audible words, but I was talking to myself again, saying, mm, I missed it. See, you can study a text all day, and you can know what it says. But when you leave the office and get interrupted, how are you going to respond? What do you really believe about the prophecy of God? What do I really believe? Does this type of thing happen to you? Are you regularly struggling to live your life under the happy, happy submission to God's providence over every detail of your day? Happy submission. You don't like that word, do you? Oh, we like to submit with our teeth clenched. God did this again. I cannot believe, you know. We don't like to say, another opportunity. I got to go get the girls. There's somebody in that line. There's somebody at that door that I need to speak kindly to. They might be having a terrible day. My presence, my smile might be lifting them up. My children are coming into my car. I get an opportunity to talk with them and love them and care for their souls. I get to serve my wife with joy and happiness. I get to show up 15 minutes 
Ryan was praying or something, reading the Bible. He's a godly person. He wasn't wasting that time, right? You're not, some of you don't want to crack a smile right now because you know, you, it's like he's meddling now. Get back out, get out of there. It's a bother, isn't it? It's hard to believe it in the depths of our heart in a daily way. I think there are a couple truths in our text that are going to help us with this. With joyful lives under God's glorious providence. So I want us to look at the passage together. First of all, we need to see that God's glorious providence drips from the page of these stories in Acts. So we're right here in Acts chapter 23. In verse 11 it says that Jesus came to Paul, who was already under arrest in the barracks. And this is what Jesus said to him. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Jesus tells him this. And then in verse 12 of the text, we begin to see the story unfold of how he would get to Rome. And it's not at all how he must have thought he would get there. You see, this first story that comes to us in 23, 12 through, uh, through verse uh, 20, uh, 22 tells us about a plot to take Paul's life. So there's these Jews, they're gathered together, the Sanhedrin, the council, the leaders, and there's a group inside of that known as the Zealots. And they believe in bringing the Messiah by overthrowing Rome. They're going to start the overthrow of Rome, and the Messiah is going to come in and rescue them. Famous Zealots in the Bible, Simon the Zealot, a disciple of Jesus. Another one, Judas Iscariot. You ever wondered, why did Judas get the idea to kill Jesus? Well, because he wasn't the Messiah that the zealots believed would come. He wasn't the Messiah that they had expected. So he needed to be removed so that no one would follow him so that they could move the plot along, overthrow the human government. So these guys are meeting and they're plotting, and this is what 40 of them do in the text. They take a vow, an oath, to not eat or drink until Paul is dead. And they say, hey, here's what you do. Have Paul brought down again for a trial and when he comes down we'll we'll kill him we'll murder him but we're confronted face to face with the sovereignty of God in verse 16 now the son of Paul's sister we've never heard of Paul's family this is right here now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush you think he accidentally heard Did he just happen, this young boy, to be standing around when 40 men are planning to kill his uncle? No. God placed this boy right there. He heard it with his own ears. What does he do? He goes to his uncle Paul. And he says, they're planning to kill you. Paul calls the centurion and says, take this boy to the ruler. Let him talk. He goes and shares his story. He goes and shares his story with Lysias. And Lysias, hearing this, begins to act. Begins to be used by God to protect Paul. So in verses 23 through 35, we see what happens. With this information, Lysias says to the the young man, don't tell anyone about these things. And then he calls two of his centurions to him. 
He calls two centurions to him, and he says, you need to get 200 soldiers ready, 200 spearmen ready, and 70 cavalry members. And provide an animal, a beast of burden for Paul. We're going to take him to Felix. Do you see what God's done here? God, through his providence, used a young boy. How do I know he's young? Because Lysias takes him by the hand. He's a, you don't do that with like a 22-year-old. That's weird. You do that with a young boy. God uses a young boy hearing a conversation being had about his uncle. The young boy then takes it to Paul. Paul sends him to Lysias. Lysias hears and believes this young boy. And now the whole empire of Rome is working under God's providence to protect and preserve Paul's life. 470 out of 600 soldiers in Jerusalem are sent as personal protectors of the Apostle Paul. God is providentially carrying out what he promised Paul would happen in verse 11 of chapter 23, but he's not doing it how Paul might have thought he would. There's no way Paul could have ever thought. I can imagine, can you imagine Paul sitting on this horse, he's under house arrest, and there's 470 soldiers around him. So God used a small boy. God used the mightiest army in the world all to carry out his will. That's what our text says. In 24, 1 through 21, Tertullus is brought to give his speech before Felix and to explain the charges against the apostle. He makes several accusations. First of all, he says Paul stirs up insurrection in Jerusalem. Second, he teaches about this sect of the Nazarenes, the only place in the Bible that Christianity is called the sect of the Nazarenes, probably because nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Right? Three, profanes the temple. Paul is a temple profaner. But then Paul gives a masterful defense. All of this flattery, all of this oozing flattery by Tertullus about Felix. Let me just tell you about Felix really quick. Felix is a Roman governor who was born into slavery, set free, and his brother Paulus, who is the head of the civil service of the Roman Empire, places him as governor over Judea. He's a former slave who now rules a whole province for Rome. And how does he use it? Oh, to kill his enemies and to treat people with all kinds of malice and hatred. He's one of the worst rulers Jerusalem ever knew. And yet, listen to Tertullus. Oh, since you, we enjoy peace because of your foresight and your provision. Blah, 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 blah. You know, flattery. Flattery. What does the Apostle Paul do? He gets his chance to respond. What does he say? Knowing for many years you have been a judge over this nation. That's just a fact. No flattery. I cheerfully make my defense. And he goes on in verse 14. Listen to what he says. After refuting what actually happened, Tertullus wasn't there. Paul was. He says, but this I confess to you, verse 14, that according to the way, Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. What is his hope in God? That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. 
I'm not guilty of anything. I haven't done what this man says I have done. I have fulfilled, I have lived out the way that our fathers lived out under God's providence in the old covenant. I'm just simply following through with what the promises were made to us. What happens? Well, surely he's going to be let go, right? I mean, he made a great defense. Notice he understands why he's here. He says, look, I haven't profaned the temple. I haven't caused, I've only been here 12 days. I haven't caused any insurrection. These Jews came down from Asia attacking me and and stirring up the crowds against me. And when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, other than this one thing, why? That I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul had refuted everything and said, the only thing I'm guilty of is preaching the resurrection from the dead. That's it. So he's going to be let go. No. Felix, being a weak leader, wanting to, you know, hear more about it and kind of tip a hat at the Jews, he keeps Paul in custody. Custody, And that's what we see in verses 22 through the end of the chapter in verse 27. He keeps him under lock and key. While under house arrest, Paul, for two years, is brought before Felix several times. What did Paul do while he was there with Felix? Well, he spoke to Felix and Drusilla, who was a Jew, on her second or maybe third marriage, by the way. A beautiful woman who Felix had connived to take as his wife, kind of like other leaders in Jewish history who John the Baptist confronted about their wives. This is what Paul did. Paul was brought before Felix and Drusilla and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. What was Paul doing under house arrest? The same thing he was doing in the world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Interesting topics, right? Here this adulterous, murderous governor is with his adulterous wife. And what does Paul choose to talk about? Christ Jesus and self-control and the coming judgment and the righteousness of God. Paul didn't compromise anything. He stood for what he believed. That's part of what he was doing for two years under house arrest. He was speaking the truth. He was preaching the gospel. But he was doing something else under the providence of God. Him and Luke were receiving visitors and sending letters. And they were doing one huge important task. They were gathering the information needed to write the gospel according to Luke. And Acts, which we hold in our hands today. You have to ask yourself, if Paul is bouncing from one city to the next city to the next city, planting churches in these two years You just have to ask, would Luke have ever been written? Would Acts have ever been written? We don't know, right? But under the providence of God, he got a set aside for a purpose. He saw it as the providence of God. God had brought a boy to warn of a plot to kill him, had delivered him with 470 soldiers, placed him in house arrest, let him preach the gospel and righteousness and self-control and judgment for two years and collect all that was needed to write this 
powerful book we now hold in our hands. Rather than sitting around crying about what he couldn't do, Paul was busy about doing what God had called him to do. Well, we see this and we left to think about it. Chapter 25, maybe he's going to get let go now that Felix is gone and Porcius Festus has come in to be the governor. Unfortunate names these people had. They couldn't have a normal name like Carlton. Festus comes after three days, arrives in the province. He goes up to Jerusalem, to Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews make their case against Paul. And they urge him for a favor against Paul. Summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning another ambush to kill him. Festus replied that Paul was in Caesarea, some 60 miles away. And he himself interceded or intended to go there shortly. So... He took the men of authority with him instead. And after some days, he stood, he sat in the place of judgment in the tribunal, and he begins to hear from Paul. The charges are made against him, and then Paul argued in his own defense. And he says in verse 8 Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So, wishing to do a favor to the Jews, he said to Paul, Do you wish to go down to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And Paul says this. Listen, listen to this. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, listen to this, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. He took the right of the Romans to appeal to Caesar. And Festus found his way out. To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. So there it is. The text deals with over two years of the great apostle's life, and we're challenged to believe in the providence of God over every detail. Nothing happens. Nothing happens outside of the will of God. And he loves us and his plan for us is perfect. But what one truth. So we see the providence of God, right? We see it. Little boys, armies, rulers, people. To do what? To get Paul to Rome. Why is he going to Rome? Because Jesus said, just like you witnessed for me in Jerusalem, so you will witness for me in Rome. What is that a fulfillment of? When he called him to the ministry, what did he tell him you will do? You will preach my gospel to the Gentiles among who? The great, the powerful, the wealthy, the kings. He promised him this is where he would go. At the very beginning of his ministry. Had Paul ventured to go to Rome on his own? I was telling uh, Arlene and Sean this this morning. Because if you get close to me when I'm ready to preach, you're going to get a little. Had Paul said, I'm going to go to Rome, and he just got on a boat and went to Rome, do you think he would have ever stood before Caesar? Not a chance. Paul's a nobody. And he's dealing with a nobody sect 
I mean, the Christians at this time, this is a small little group of people. You think Nero, who is the Caesar he's going to go stand in front of, you think he would have taken up time with the Apostle Paul? Oh, yeah, there's the Apostle Paul. Made a missionary journey. Let's bring him in and talk. No. Why did Paul stand before Caesar? Because in the providence of God, he faced false, he faced false charges, false imprisonment, interruption, inconvenience. Why? So he could go and preach the gospel to Caesar himself. Paul could have never known when all this was happening how it would all play itself out, but he trusted in God's good providence. And what I'm saying is, is that we should trust that way. What the Bible's calling us to do is trust Him. Trust God. Don't sing He's a good, good Father and then turn around and say, I don't know how I ended up here. God must have forgot me. No. Believe it. Don't say, boy, I'm so excited I get to preach a message on the providence of God and then get in sin between one place and five miles later because my plan didn't happen. The chips at the Mexican restaurant are waiting on me. I mean, literally, that's how trivial it becomes, right, to us. The trivial, we treat God's providence like trivial doctrine. Like it doesn't matter. Because we got interrupted. I had plans. Paul trusted in the providence of God because he knew something that was already the case. And this is how it, so all I've said no arguments, right? Everybody's there and they're like, okay, but how? How do we do that? I'm about to tell you how. Paul already was living. He knew that he was already living his eternal life right now. You will never trust the providence of your father until you realize he has already made you of the new creation. And so therefore, everything that happens to you from the time of your salvation until the time you're welcomed into glory is simply God's eternal plan being played out right now. So when you sit and talk to someone, this isn't by chance. This was the design of God for you. When your loved one dies, this is not Satan taking them from you. This is God working out every detail. Paul lives with a great joy during these two years of being imprisoned unjustly because his faith is fueled by eternity. This is what we see when he says in our text, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worshiped the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written to the prophets in the prophets, having what? A hope in God. What is your hope in God? Paul, that there will be a resurrection of both just and unjust. Why are you standing in front of these leaders today, Paul? Because I stood and proclaimed and witnessed in front of them that there is a resurrection from the dead. Paul understood that eternity doesn't start in the future. It started the moment he was saved. Jesus providentially teaches us this in his own ministry. So now I'm going to show you a theological thing, and I'm going to pull it forward in all of Paul's writings, and I hope sends you out of here fired up to wash the dishes this afternoon. 
fired up to change a diaper, fired up to have a conversation with the person that God sat you by at the doctor's office, fired up to get a bad diagnosis knowing that he has a reason for it. Everything under his, re- under his reign matters. Listen to this. Jesus providentially waited four days when he received news of his dear friend Lazarus being sick and dying. He just waited. Is that how you respond? A so-and-so is going to die. Okay. Thank you for the news. Now back to the campfire. After he had waited, he then tells his men, we're going to go to Bethany and see Lazarus. But Lord, the Jews want to kill you. Oh, I, he's fallen asleep. Well, if he's asleep, he'll get better. Well, no. I mean, he's dead. And I'm glad for your sake. Listen to what Jesus says. I'm glad for your sake that we were not there. So that you could see the glory of God. So Thomas says, well, if he's going to go, then we're all going to go. Let's go. And they get up and they go to Bethany. They walk there. And when they show up, Jesus is greeted by Martha. It's interesting how these characters play themselves out throughout the whole story. Mary says is sitting in the house grieving over her brother, and Martha hears Jesus coming and gets up and runs to him. This is the same Mary and Martha we've been dealing with all along, right? Mary's just grieving. She's waiting. Martha's busy as a bee. She runs out there to speak to the Lord, and this is what she says when she greets him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that faith? Is that faith? Answer the question. Yes. Yeah. You could have saved him. She believed that Jesus could save him from death. What she wasn't yet aware of was Jesus would deliver him from death. She wasn't quite clear on the resurrection yet. And Jesus intended to teach her. Not just her, but all of them. Jesus says to her, we know this is what Jesus is after because he says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now this is standard Orthodox Jewish belief. But I want you to hear what Martha professes orthodoxy, but she doesn't quite have a full understanding of what Jesus is really doing. She believes in a future resurrection, but look what Jesus says with his next words. He revolutionizes the understanding and theology of the resurrection. And I believe it's this that fueled Paul's joy under providence. And it should fuel our joy under providence. Listen to what Jesus says when Martha makes this orthodox statement concerning the resurrection. Jesus said to her, listen, these are words you know, probably. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So far, orthodox. Same truth. And everyone who lives and believes in me, what? Shall never die. Big idea. Huge theological truth. Jesus is saying, I I am the resurrection and the life. Not only will I raise your body from the dead on the last day, 
But if you believe in me, you will live in such a way that you will never, ever die. Is that true? People die in faith. What is Jesus saying? He can't be talking about the physical body anymore, can he? He's talking about a deeper truth here. The first truth he stated, that he will raise them at the end, that's orthodox. We got it. That's Old Testament. We believe it. But what he expands on is the understanding that he's already made you alive if you believe in him. We call it regeneration. New birth. Dead spirits made alive. And once they're alive, they can never die. How can this statement be true? Because Jesus Christ not only promised and secured eternity for us in the future, but through his victory over sin, death, and the grave, he brought eternity back to each one of us who believe in him. We are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit based on the work of Jesus Christ alone. And when he raises our spiritual man to life, we now live in Christ and we can never die. This is the heartbeat of Paul's theology. He was always preaching the power of the resurrection. Listen to the words from various writings of Paul. Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, what? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Why is this important? Because under the providence of God, you will live joyfully and you will defeat sin believing you're already alive in Christ. Now the grave and sin have no hold on you. So it is an untrue statement for a Christian to say, well, I can't help but sin. It's just, I can't help it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You can't help it. Or either you're not a Christian. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's whole reasoning about sanctification comes from the resurrection. We are alive in Christ, church. Therefore, we're free from sin. Romans 8, 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things, providence, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The whole paragraph right there that we quote all the time is based on the providence of God. And what Paul says is it's based on the fact that the Spirit of God lives in you. Therefore, you're alive. And if you're alive, you can't die. And so everything that's happening to you is bringing you into his presence. Everything is making you more like him. He's reasoning from the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18 and 5, 1 through 21. Listen to these words. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that a grace, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Why, Paul? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is Paul reasoning from? The resurrection. How do I accept disaster in my life? Because my life is hidden in Christ. And everything that's happening to me is happening to an eternal, ever-living spirit that will never die. So let it come. This is what Jesus reasons from when he says, don't fear those who can cast the body into prison or kill it. Fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Jesus is reasoning from the resurrection. The most important thing about you is not what we can see. It's what we can't see. It's the eternal being. He goes on to say, for we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about his body. For in this tent we groan, long to put on heavenly dwellings, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Our spiritual life is a guarantee of the physical resurrection in the future. Therefore, everything that happens to me is under the providence of God happening so that I can receive it as from my good Father and rejoice and not be broken. Be perplexed, but not crushed. Be struck down, but not really struck down. Still able to persevere. And so he writes, not only there, but in Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What was Paul thinking when he was in prison? This is about Jesus. Providentially, I've been put here. And providentially, I will be delivered to Caesar. And providentially, I will preach the gospel. 
and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and die is gain. If I'm alive in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose. I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There are many passages that I could read but I'm not going to continue. This is Paul's theology. It was hopeful and it was joyful because he accepted the providence of God because he understood that eternal life in Christ began when he was made alive in Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life began then. This means that he was living his life, his, the eternal life in the flesh right now and it was transforming his heart and mind. Suffering, inconvenience, interruption, imprisonment were the glorious providence of a good and faithful father. And so he would receive it. I don't envision, maybe you do, but I don't envision that Paul sat in, in the house grumbling and complaining like I did on my 10-minute journey to get my kids from school. He sat for two years worshiping the risen Lord, impacting everybody around him by his joyful faith in a providential God. Why? Because he said, this is my eternal life. Right now. Not I'm going to live in eternity, but I'm alive right now in Christ. Colossians chapter 3. My life is hidden in Christ, and when he appears, then I will appear with him. He understood everything through the grid of the resurrection. And he was alive eternally. And what he did in this moment was speaking and echoing into eternity. It was preparing for him a great weight of glory, not worthy of comparison. Is this how we are living our lives? You and I will never accept the providence of God in the big things of our life until we accept the providence of God in the little things. Don't get twisted. Oh, yeah, I struggle on a daily basis, but when the gun's held to my head, no. The little things are the training ground. The little things prepare us for the big things. What are you going to do when the doctor says, you have a cancer that's incurable? You're going to die. Will you accept it as a good gift from your father? Because you, cancer can't kill you. You live a new life. A, a life that can't be touched by this world. Or will you despair and begin to show a lack of belief? Better yet, what if like one of my high school friends is your 12-year-old daughter who has incurable brain cancer? And goes through 35 treatments of radiation just to try to preserve her life for a little bit longer on this earth. 
How will you receive that news? Paul is in prison for two years on false charges by the providence of God. It's not an accident. The Lord is using him in this life for his glory. Everything that Paul can see happening has 10,000 things that he cannot see happening behind the things he can see. And he believes in the things he can't see more than the things he can see. And the same is true for us, Grace Fellowship. We live by faith in the Son of God. We cannot see all that our God and good Father is doing for us. He is doing 10,000 things, as Piper says, for every one thing we can see. And that's an understatement, not an overstatement. Everything, everything that's happening to us is laying up a great weight of glory not worthy to be compared to these momentary light afflictions which are preparing the great weight of glory for us. And so this is why my favorite hymn... um, Written in 1773 by the great William Cooper. Six six verses. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign providential will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Do you believe it? This, This is what I just read to you from the Apostle Paul. If you know about William Cooper, he spent years with great depression, most days unable to leave his living room. He would stare and watch the people of God go to church, and he could not get up and go because he was so weighed down. And yet, he said, that dark cloud is ready to burst with blessings over my head. Judge, listen, this is where some of you are right now, and this is a warning from Cooper who's with the Lord now, because you're judging God by your sense. You're saying, this doesn't make sense to me. It's not the, this is not my God. My God doesn't do these kind of things. Well, I got news for you. I don't mean to be mean. It doesn't matter what your God does. The only true God is the one of this Bible. Judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's the God of the Bible. This is the one we sit in awe of. And it's the one that when I leave my office to go get my appointment on and get interrupted, I need to say, oh, God, you have put me right where I am. This is not a mistake. How will you use me? This is the God who, as you are at home caring for little children and you don't think anybody in the world knows or cares, you carry on because you say, I have a sovereign, providential God who cares about every detail of this day. This is how you handle the little skirmishes in your marriage 
and the death sentence of cancer. This is how we handle it all. How? Believing that our new resurrected life has already started. Knowing that that God who gave us life will carry us throughout eternity. And everything he does is good and right and will work for his glory. Even when the thing I'm in right now doesn't feel good, it will in the end be for my good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are deep things. When we try to understand your ways, we are left mouths agape saying, this is not how we would do it. But Lord, help us not to judge you by feeble, ignorant sense. Help us to look deeply into the mysteries of our faith. And where we don't have an answer, let your word speak and every man be silent. I pray that at Grace Fellowship, we would joyfully live our life before you. And that's impossible unless we know you are giving us our life, you have given us our life, and you will sustain our life under your providence. Lord, help us now as we celebrate and worship you through the taking of communion. We take this grace so lightly often. Help us not to. This is our chance to fellowship with you in the Spirit, to have you near us, with us at the table and with each other. So, Lord, we gather now to take this bread and this juice and once again remember you until you come. It's all about the resurrection. You're coming. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. We will take the supper today.